Welcome to Demand and Disrupt the Disability Podcast. Here, we will learn to advocate for ourselves and each other. This podcast is supported with funds from the Advocato Press based in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome, everyone, to Demand and Disrupt a Disability Podcast. I'm here with Lisa McKinley. Hey, Lisa, how are you? Hey, everyone. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. It's October, so it's only about 87 here in Kentucky now, but at least there's hope, right? Maybe we'll get a break soon, maybe. Fingers crossed. So October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Now, tell me, did it not just used to be regular old National Disability Awareness Month? Do you know? I think you're right. I mean... I guess they have to add the national on now for who knows what reason. Well, it's not the national they add on, it's the employment. Oh, it's the, the employment. instead of just, yeah, instead of just disability awareness. Now, you know, I mean, us disabled folks, it's, it, it's really all about just how much productivity we can do for the man. See, you know? I thought it was two different things. I thought we got two months, but we only get one. How rude. But at least I know. we get a month. Well, I mean, July was Disability Pride Month, so there's that. And then there's International Disability Day, which is like in December. And we have some things going on for that that I'll tell everyone closer to time. But so maybe I'm just being greedy. Maybe I just want too much. huh? No, I think we get uh, we should get every day. There you go. There you go. I love it. So another thing to celebrate is that it is. um near or just past the 50th anniversary of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which I'm sure you learned all about in school, correct? <laughs> no, not at all, but I am exactly. so happy those people, so many people paved the way for us 50 years ago. They did. They do you did. remember 50 years ago? I do not. I was not alive 50 years ago. I was no, not. So there you go. But uh, yeah, they Judy Human, and I, I just think of her because she passed away very recently. We are losing a lot of our uh, of our idols, those who who fought these battles, so that we could enjoy the the rights and privileges that we have now. One thing that people can turn to there's an excellent Netflix documentary called Crip Camp. Crip, of course, for cripple. Um, I think they're taking back that word using, you know, pe people who are disabled and want to take back that word are doing that. And I think that that's fine. Um, so it's called Crip Camp and it is on Netflix and it is an amazing documentary about the independent living movement. And, uh, you know, at the end, it does talk about it, that culmination of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. So I advise everyone to look that up on Netflix. It is very moving. I cried. I did. Um, wow. That's something I've not watched yet. I'm, I'll have to renew my Netflix subscription because that sounds like something I definitely need to watch. It, it, it was really wonderful. So now our interview today is you did our interview today. So why don't you tell me about who, who you're going to be talking with? I did. I had the pleasure of speaking with Jason Coger. Jason lost both of his hands back in 
March of 2008 after he came in contact with a downed power line. Um, He received several thousand volts of electricity, which he'll tell us about later in the interview. And um, in order to save his life, doctors had to remove both of his hands below the elbow. And as he is the first bilateral hand amputee to receive two bionic hands and it's what's really fascinating about Jason and his story is he has been able to use these hands and do things with the hands that the company the designers of the bionics didn't even know were possible Um, just changing the oil in his car hunting fishing um, just intricate little movements that they didn't even think were possible and and as a result he's been featured on cnn he's been in an episode of hawaii 5-0 been featured on dr gupta and even appeared in a movie with matthew mcconaughey so really yeah wow wow quite fascinating i really enjoyed talking with him Excellent. That sounds great. So, all right, everyone, we're going to hear Lisa's interview with Jason Coker. Welcome, Jason. Thank you very much for having me. If you would take us back to that day, March 1st, 2008. Yep. Um, So March 1st, 2008 was the uh, first warm day of the year. Um, you know, I don't know, it was probably in the mid-70s. I mean, it was beautiful outside. I had been working uh, 7-12s prior to that. So, you know, seven days a week, 12-hour day shifts is what I was working and making really good money and, and you know, putting extra money on my home so that I could get it paid down quite a bit, which by March 1st, I had paid quite a bit on my house, which obviously – help because when I went through my accident, um, I couldn't work and couldn't pay for <clears throat> things that I had before. So definitely, uh, that had helped me out. But, but, uh, on March 1st, 2008, I woke up that morning and, uh, probably the first day that, that I had a day off and wanted to do something with my kids. And, uh, my oldest daughter was 21 months old and my youngest was three months old at the time of my accident. And I took them to Owensboro to go on a little train ride at the mall. And um, we went and did that, came home, uh, laid them down for a nap, and then uh, decided that I was going to go on a uh, quick four-wheeler ride around my grandfather's farm, which literally was a a five-minute ride. Um, It was, I don't know, a a quarter of a mile long, you know, something that I've been around this farm my entire life. So, um, you know, I tell people whenever – whenever you're at your house and the lights are out and uh in the middle of the night you want to walk to the bathroom or go to the kitchen or whatever you can get up without turning lights on and know exactly where things are dressers are and make it to wherever you're going and and not run into walls because you're so familiar with with where you're at and I felt like that around this farm because I've been around it my entire life so went on this quick four-wheeler ride and uh, it makes a U-shape, starts at my house, goes behind my house, U-shape to my grandfather's. The second left-hand turn, there's a culvert 
and that's the only place you can uh, go through. And there was a, uh, a down power line that I didn't see. So the line was about 30 inches off the ground and I came in contact with it. And at first it didn't do anything to me. Uh, but then as I was trying to look to see where the line was going, uh, it energized and I took 7,200 volts of electricity. A lot of people, they don't even know what 7,200 volts is, but 7,200 volts is actually more than the electric chair. Electric chair is only 6,800 volts. Um, but it was enough power that it stopped my heart for 30 seconds because when electricity, when you get electrocuted, uh, it'll electrocute you for 30 seconds and then it kicks the breaker. So I took 7,200 volts for 30 seconds. Uh, the voltage, the 7,200 volts was enough that it stopped my heart for 30 seconds. Uh, came out of the bottom of my right foot. And actually, they found my tennis shoe 30 feet from where I was laying. Oh, my goodness. How did you survive that? That's a miracle. Yeah, it's, um, you know, uh, there, there's not very many people that, that do survive 7,200 votes, really. You know what I mean? It's, um, uh, that's a lot. Now your cousin was with you, right? He's yes. So my my cousin was behind me whenever uh, whenever I got injured, and and he knew that I that I got electrocuted, and I you know my cousin don't speak a lot about it to be honest with you. He uh, I really think that he thought that was the end of my life. I think he thought that you know he said that it looked like Fourth of July was coming off my buddy, my buddy off my body, which, you know, sparks were going everywhere. And um, when you get electrocuted, it actually burns you from the inside out is what it does. Um, it it exited out my left thumb as well. So it pretty much blew my left thumb, was just barely hanging on. Uh, it basically blew it off. But other than that, it, uh, it ripped my tendons off the tips of my fingers. So all 10 of my tendons were wrapped around my wrist. So I looked like um, I looked like a stroke victim where my hands wouldn't, they were curled up. Um, and my hands would have never worked, um, even if they did save them. But when you get electrocuted and it burns you from the inside out, it causes uh, poisonous toxins inside your body. And the poison has to go somewhere. So it goes through your kidneys. So uh, I was life flighted to uh, Vanderbilt Hospital and when I went to Vanderbilt uh, in the helicopter, they had cathed me and the urine bag that was beside me looked like Dr. Pepper. And what that is, is that's all the blood and poison going through your body, which was shutting my kidneys down. Um, and ultimately, when I made it to Vanderbilt, it was a life or death situation because of all the poison uh, and the chemicals that were inside my body. They had to find where the infection was and get rid of the infection. And the infection for me was in both of my hands. So immediately they had to amputate in order to save my life because of my kidneys. Do you find sharing your story now, like I, I would assume, and for me, every time I share my story, because I've been asked, you know, lots of times over the year how I've lost my vision, it it takes a little of the 
I guess the sting out or the power of that day and it becomes easy. Have you found that as well? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, again, I think things happen for a reason and, um, you know, I feel like my reason is to share with others that no matter what you go through, that you can, you can get through it, you know, and, um, no matter how bad it is or, or, um, you know, I think some people look at my story and they're like, how can it be any worse than losing two arms? Well, I don't know what it's like to lose two legs, right? I don't know what it's like to lose vision or lose hearing or lose, uh, whatever it is. I mean, we're all blessed with so many good things in our life and things that we could all need and use. And whenever something is taken away from you, you, you have to use that for whatever, for, for however you can in a positive way to show everybody that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, God does all things, uh, for a reason and in a positive way. And, um, and that's why I love sharing my story now. I share my story because I feel like I can inspire others to overcome anything, whatever they're going through. Yes. I, I've heard someone put it in a really good way once that always stuck with me. He said, you know, focus on the things you can do and not the thing. If you focus on the things you can't do, it will steal the joy from the things you can do. And yep. I'm like, that's so true. Can you tell me what it was like when you first woke up in the hospital? Yeah. Um, you know, when I first woke up, yeah, my dad told me basically, I didn't know I was going to lose my arms. Right. I was in a induced coma for three days. Um, and I really didn't, um, I really, whenever he told me that I lost my heart, my arms, I think the first thing that went through my mind was not how am I going to be able to live or survive or feed myself or dress myself or, or whatever. I didn't think about all that stuff. I just kept on thinking about my kids that, you know, I got at the time I had two little girls and, and now I have three, uh, three kids, but at the time having two kids, you know, the most important thing is for them to still have their dad, right? And the the other stuff, and I say little stuff, but uh, the dressing yourself, feeding yourself, and doing things on your own really wasn't as important um, of anything out of my entire life. Nothing was as important of just being a dad, being able to teach my kids, walk across the street with my dad, my kids, play baseball, do the things that everybody wants to do. And um, so I think in the back of my mind, I just kept on and kept on thinking, how can I still be the dad that I wanted to be? And that was most important. And um, you say your your doctor came in and, and asked you something or made a proposal to you the the day you woke up can you tell us what that was yeah so dr guy was my doctor and he came into the uh the hospital room and he sat down with me and he explained to me basically why they had to amputate uh because of the poisonous toxins inside my body and and he told me he said jason you're going to be in the hospital for months and he said before you get out of this hospital i want you to think of maybe one goal that you have and make sure that, that it is realistic. And I want to try to help you reach that one goal that you have. 
And he said, um, so I want you to sit and think about what that goal is. And again, make sure that it's something that's realistic. And he stood up to walk out of my hospital room. And I told him, I said, Dr. Guy, I know what I want. I know that the goal that I have, and I, and I, I do want you to help me reach this goal. And he said, what is the goal that you have? And I told him, I said, if I can hold my kids again, that's all I care about. Um, at the time of my accident, my oldest was 21 months old and my youngest was three months old. And again, I wasn't worried about how I was going to be able to dress myself or feed myself. I just wanted to be able to hold my kids again. And I'll never forget him looking at me and telling me that that would happen. And uh, so anyway, I think it was the next day or maybe a couple of days later, Dr. Guy walks in my room and he sits down with me and he says, hey, Jason, uh, your kids are here to see you. I'm going to bring them to the waiting room. I mean, into your room. And I said, no, I don't want my kids in this room because at the time, you know, I had tubes hanging out of my arms, um, didn't have hands. I had heart monitors. I had feeding tubes, catheters. Um, I mean, I was hooked up to all kinds of stuff. And I remember, you know, telling him that I didn't want my kids in my room like that. I didn't want, they're already going to be scared of me with no arms. Um, I don't want them to see me with all this other stuff hooked up to me. And, uh, and again, he told me I was going to be in this hospital for months. So that day I talked him into unplugging me, uh, taking the feeding tubes out, uh, catheter out. And he got me up. He got me out of, uh, out of the bed. And that very day I went to the waiting room and that was the first day that I held my kids. Now my oldest, uh, Billy Grace was uh, 21 months old and she was still scared to get in front of me, but she would come up from behind me and put her head over my shoulder and talk to me. But uh, Campbell was three months old and uh, I held her for the first time. And that was probably four or five days after losing both of my arms. And, and that one goal that I reached, I knew that when it happened, I had a piece um, that I felt that I knew everything was gonna be okay. You know, everything was gonna work out my life was going to be great. I was going to make it great. And uh, I reached the first goal that I ever tried to do. So I knew that I knew life was going to be hard, but I knew it was going to be, um, I would be able to overcome this situation. Wow. And you made that goal that, that what the first day or the second or really that early on. First, that was the first day I was awake that I made that goal. I mean, I was in an induced coma for three days. So that was the very first day that I was awake, uh, that I wanted to do that, that I, that that was my goal. And I think it was the day after. So it was, uh, either the fifth or the sixth day of losing my hands was the day I reached that goal. It's amazing what motivation our children provide your, your children, your family, they will motivate you to do things and find strength in yourself you did not know you had. So I think it was really fortunate for you that you had children at the time. Do you think you think it might have been different if you didn't have that motivation? I know that I feel like just knowing that I had two kids at home that needed their dad, I'm sure was a huge benefit for my success or 
for my overcoming. And I don't know how I would have felt if I didn't have that. I mean, I was 29 years old, uh, freshly married with, you know, starting a family and, you know, was it my age that made it better or, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it all comes down to, um, you know, the, the community that I had around me, the friends that I surround myself with, uh, the family that I had, the age, I mean, everything lined up the faith. I, I mean, I think faith is one of the biggest one of the biggest things you have to have in order to succeed through any kind of a, of a bad situation or a bad uh, accident or, or what that, whatever it is, because at the end of the day, every single person is going to go through a bad day, a bad time. It may not be physically, it may be mentally, but everybody is going to go through a, a hard time. And we all have to be prepared to overcome whatever that is. And it may be something a lot smaller than what I went through, but it may be something that's a lot bigger than what I went through. And Tell me what it was like coming home for the first time. So whenever I first got home, I, I was actually, like I said, supposed to have been in the hospital for months. And I worked extremely hard to get home. And I asked Dr. Guy the things that I had to do in order to get home. And the goals that I had to reach in order to come home. And I reached all those goals. So 12 days after losing both of my arms, I was released from the hospital. I came home back to Owensboro. And now that you, you're from here, you may know where this is. But when you when you get on Frederica Street and you go south, it turns into 431. And I just live just south of the mall, the old mall. And there's a church on the right-hand side before you get to my house called Panther Creek Baptist Church. And that day that I made it home, which nobody knew I was coming home that day, somebody had called them on my drive home and they went out and they, uh, they put a message on the board that I could see and it said, welcome home, Jason. We've been praying for you. I will never forget seeing that sign. Um, the people in this community and I wish that every place was like this one, but people in my community came to my house. They brought us meals. They cleaned our house. They would babysit or watch me and let Jenny go to town just to have her time, um, which is my wife. They would, um, you know, do everything that we could ask for anybody to do for us. And some of them were complete strangers. When I, when I was injured and I lost my arms, I felt like I was the only person in the world that lost an upper limb. I'd never seen anybody but one person. My grandfather, he lost one arm and he passed away about three months before I was injured. And he was the only person that I've ever seen in my life that lost an arm. And then when I lost mine, I felt like I was the second person in the world to ever lose an, an upper limb. And obviously, uh, the last 16 years, I have met people all over the country uh, that has lost one arm, two arms, all four. And I, I set out this mission when I first got home that I was going to share my story with as many people as I could share my story with in hopes that I would meet new amputees 
and help them in this journey that I had on my own and share with them my, my story, my experiences, uh, the things that I've learned and be that encouragement or that resource that they need. And uh, I've been very successful at doing that. And I don't do that for money. I don't get paid to do that. Um, I don't think that anybody could pay me enough to get the satisfaction that I get whenever I work with new amputees and, and I get to see their first smile and I get, I get to see uh, their eyes light up whenever they get hope, you know what I mean? And the smile that they get knowing that their life is definitely going to be different, but it's still going to be okay. Now, when you got home, you hit the road running, right? Tell me about, um, tell me about your first drive. <laughs> the day I got home, so I was 12 days after my accident. Uh, my wife had went to town to get some groceries and my mom was sitting at my house with me and she came and she told me, she, I, I went to her and I said, Hey mom, where's the keys to my truck? And she said, I don't know on the counter. Why? And I said, because I want to see them. So I remember her giving these keys and saying, what do you want me to do with them? And I said, just put them in my mouth. And she said, well, I'll just go outside with you. And I said, mom, I don't want you to, I just want to go outside and I want to see what I can do for myself. And I remember her putting these keys in my mouth and me going outside and doing everything that I could do to open the door. And I don't, I used my mouth, my teeth, my uh, feet. I mean, everything that I had in order to open this door. And it might've took me 15 or 20 minutes, but I finally got the door open to my truck and I got in my truck and I got the key in the ignition and I got it started. And once I did that, I thought, you know what? I got to try to drive. And I drove around my grandfather's farm just 12 days after losing both my arms. And Yes, absolutely. And you can never define yourself by what people say you should be or what you can or cannot do. I've learned that early on. It sounds like you definitely have that spirit about you. Um, another story I've heard you tell, and we have to tell this one because it's just so oh, it's so fun tell us about turkey hunting so uh i love the outdoors i love to hunt and uh march uh you know march 1st when i got hurt april is when turkey season comes in so just a month a little over a month after my accident uh my buddy called me he's one of my best friends named sam smith and so sam called me and he said hey uh let's go turkey hunting and I thought about it for a minute and I thought, Sam, how can I go turkey hunting? I don't have prosthetics. I'm still bleeding. I'm still wrapped up. I cannot do this. And he said, sure you can. We got, I, I think I got it figured out. So I called my doctor. And at this time I had became super good friends with my doctor. And I was texting him back and forth. And I text Dr. Guy and I said, Hey, Dr. Guy, I got a question for you. I said, can I go turkey hunting? And he sat there in silence for a minute and he said, man, I don't know. I've never been asked this. And I said, well, can I go? And he said, well, tell me why you don't think you can go. And I said, well, man, I'm more worried about a tick getting inside my open wounds and you having to amputate more off. Like that's what scares me to death. 
And he told me, he said, well, just make sure that you uh, spray off really good. I said, okay. So I went turkey hunting and I went with my buddy and in the back of my mind, I was going to spray off really good with tick spray and I was going to sit beside him and watch him kill a turkey. And I was completely fine with that. So um, we went to the woods. I went to his house that night, spent the night with him. And as we were sitting in his living room, he walks in. He says, hey, Jason, um, I think I got a way figured out that you can shoot a gun. And I was like, Sam, I can't do that. I don't have hands. I don't have prosthetics. So he laid this shotgun in my lap, and he took the two screws out of the brother's shotgun, and he strapped that gun to my shoulder. And he put a tripod on the front with a radiator hose clamp over the end of the barrel up. And he put a string from the trigger to my mouth. And that, while we were sitting in his living room, I was dry firing this gun. And uh, I told him, I said, I think I can shoot. So the next day we went turkey hunting. And I think I missed the first couple birds that I even seen. But that day I killed my first turkey after losing both my arms and it was just a little bit over a month after my accident. Wow. That is, that is cool that you were, that he made that gun for you. Like, or, you know, to, to, to rig it up like that. I need him to make me like some kind of blind gun, you know, so like I can go <laughs> shoot turkeys and I don't know. I don't like turkey, maybe deer. Do you think he could make me a deer? Shooting I, gun? Probably so. <laughs> oh, where do you yeah. live now? What, what state are you in? I, I'm I'm in Bowling Green, Kentucky. So oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah, I'm just down the road or up the road, yep. whatever you call it. But that's really cool. Um, and then have you ever had any really embarrassing yeah. moments since? I mean, I absolutely have some embarrassing moments, yes. Um, actually, everybody's favorite story is when I first got home. The first time we went to Owensboro as a family was Hobby Lobby. And it was me, my wife, my oldest daughter, Billy, and uh, and my middle child now, her name's Campbell. Campbell was three months old, and Billy was 21 months old. And we went to Hobby Lobby and I, I told Jenny, I said, you go shopping because I can't stand shopping. And I said, me, me and Billy will go walk around. So Billy and I were probably three or four rows over from where Jenny was and I was carrying Billy no prosthetics and she got to kicking. So I set her down on the ground and she went running away from me. So I yelled at her. I said, Billy Grace, get back over here. And she turned around and was running towards me with her arms wide open, fixing to jump in my arms and give me this big hug. And I tell people it was almost like a movie. Everything was slow motion and like the best feeling in the world as a, you know, with for a father, and she got to me, and instead of jumping in my arms, she grabbed me by my pants, and she pulled my pants down to my ankles. So here I am standing in the middle of Hobby Lobby with my pants down to my ankles, and I'm trying to talk her into pulling my pants up, and she won't. So I had to wobble four <laughs> rows over to try to find my wife uh, with pants down to my ankles, and you can't walk very fast when you got pants down to your ankles. And I finally found my wife about four rows over, and she was like, oh, my gosh, this is so embarrassing. And... I was like, yeah, I just lost my pants in the middle of Hobby Lobby. So she ran over to me. She pulled my pants up. And I said, it could have been worse. And she said, how can it be worse? You just lost your pants in the middle of Hobby Lobby. And I told her, I said, well, at least my underwear stayed up. You know, it could have been <laughs> nothing. That is so true. I did. And I, I, I assume 
you weren't at the point where you were, you know, wearing a belt and fastening a belt to no. prevent that kind of thing at the time. No, they were jogging pants. That's about the best thing I could wear was jogging pants. Oh my. <laughs> hey, you have to you have to have that attitude and, and laugh at yourself and I'm sure it was mortifying at the time, but looking back on it, it's it's kind of funny. Absolutely it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> now eventually you did get prosthetics right did yeah i was um i went to my prosthetist when i was able to go talk to him and i wanted to uh i had done some research and found out about some bionic hands and i wanted to look further into the bionic stuff and so i went to a prosthetist and we sat down and i told him i said hey i really would like to get these eye limb hands and he told me, he said, man, I don't know. I don't know if you'll ever be able to get these island hands because the island hands are so expensive that you probably cannot, you know, insurance will say no. Like, that's just what's going to happen. So I told him, I said, well, let's try it. And we tried to get accepted with these bionic hands and I was turned down. I was rejected. Um, I kept on fighting for it. And then I finally got accepted to get these bionic hands. I became the first person in the world uh, as a bilateral arm amputee to be fitted with multi-articulating bionic hands, which they came out in 2008. So I was the first in the world with them. And then now I'm on my fifth generation hand. So I've been the first person in the world five times with the newest bionic hands that have ever hit the market. Wow. Do you... Do you kind of work hand in hand with the the company now or kind of an ambassador I, for them? I do. I'm an ambassador for them. It used to be called Touch Bonnet back uh, in 2008, 2009. Uh, and then the company got bought out from a, a bigger company called Oser. Uh, Oser is based out of Iceland with engineers in Scotland. Um, Oser is, uh, they have a U.S. headquarters in California. And then they have some people that work in Ohio is where they are. Um, I get to travel around the world now and show people how prosthetics work. I get to go to all the amputee shows. I get to work with the engineers. Um, I get to work with other amputees. It's really opened up a lot of doors for me to do exactly what I told you I wanted to do, which was be a source um, of information for brand new amputees and it has really shared my story in the amputee community bigger than I would have ever imagined. I mean, I've, I've met people all over the world with multiple amputations up to four amputations or even down to just a few fingers. And I am more than willing and, and able and excited to work with every single amputee I've ever had that opportunity to work with and, and try to get insurance companies to understand that, uh, the prosthetics that are out there will never replace your real hand, but it comes really close to it. No matter the price, everybody deserves to get something that gives their life back. And if it's hooks, hands, or whatever it is, uh, a patient or myself deserves to get the best thing to make their life as close to normal as they can. If you don't mind, um, kind of describe your hands 
because we're this will be just audio so um yeah describe how they operate and function so i have two different sets of hands i have the body power that people have seen um since civil war days uh just the hook um it basically rubber bands keep it closed and there's a cable uh that opens and closes it and the cable goes around your shoulders so when I move my left shoulder forward, all I'm doing is pulling a cable for my right arm to open. Uh, so it's opposite shoulder to hand. Those are body powered. And then the myoelectrics are multi-articulating fingers means there's six different motors in the hand. Uh, I cannot just hold one finger up or a two finger or whatever. I can hold fingers and style them out. Uh, but the way it works is I have sensors that lay on my muscles. So when I feel like I raise my wrist in the air, it opens the hand. And when I lower my wrist, it closes the hand. So it just opens and closes. But then when I co-contract, it basically tells the hand that, hey, he wants to go into rotation now. And then when I raise my wrist, it rotates up. When I lower my wrist, it rotates down. And it will keep on going 360 degrees. Uh, until I let go of the muscle and then you co-contract to get back in to open and close. But it also has an Apple app. Uh, so the hand knows where it is in space. So when I hold open, if the hand's wide open and I hold open and the finger flicks, then I can move forwards, backwards, left or right to go into certain grips that I can set up with an Apple app. So I can get to a pinch. I can get to whatever those things are I can get to, which is, it sounds complicated, but it's really not once you once you do that. Jason, do you have any last words of wisdom for for any of our listeners today before we go? <clears throat> so I just wrote a book. And if anybody wants to get on my website, it's just jasoncoger.com, K-O-G-E-R.com. I'm selling my book there, but I wrote this book just to share the story of inspiration or a story of overcoming and, and showing that my faith and my attitude is truly what gotten me through what I've been through. And the name of the book is called Handed a Greater Purpose. And I thought of that because no matter the situation, no matter what we're going through, we all have to understand that God has a, a greater purpose for each and every one of us. And, and if you have that faith, and you know that God has a bigger plan for us, then somehow, some way, life just keeps going on and keeps moving forward. Um, I just want people to know that sometimes when you go through a bad situation that you will be handed a greater purpose. And that's why I named my book, Handed a Greater Purpose. That is such a great title, so appropriately titled. So, Jason, I just want to thank you again for coming on the program, sitting down with us, sharing your story. I know it will be meaningful and impact a lot of lives. So thank you. And, you know, I would love for people to follow me on Instagram or Facebook or any social media and reach out to me on my website. I, I love helping people and hearing people's stories. And I would absolutely love anybody to, to contact me and, Share, share a little bit about their life or maybe what my life has meant to them. Absolutely. And um, where can they find you again? 
uh, jasoncoger.com. So it's J-A-S-O-N-K-O-G-E-R.com. Or I have a public page on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm on TikTok. I'm on uh, Snapchat. I'm on all the stuff. So pretty all the easy things. To you have teenagers now. They're making you get on all those things, right? Exactly right. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. If you like the podcast, remember to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you really like the podcast, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That helps more people to find us. If you really, really like the podcast, then please tell someone about it, either in person or send them an email or just share the link on social media. Thank you all. Every bit helps and it makes a huge difference for us. If you'd like a transcript, please send us an email to demandanddisrupt at gmail.com and put transcript in the subject line. Thanks to Steve Moore for helping us out with transcripts. Thanks to Chris Unkin for our theme music. Demand and Disrupt is a publication of the Advocado Press with generous support from the Center for Accessible Living located in Louisville, Kentucky. And you can find links to buy the book, A Celebration of Family, Stories of Parents with Disabilities, in our show notes. Thanks, everyone. You say you've seen a change in me Just for once I think I would
Spelled out 